Anna Angelic is a strategy executive and the author of The Business of Aspiration. Forbes lists her among the world's most influential CMOs. She specializes in building brand-driven modern businesses. Anna earned her doctorate in sociology and worked at many of the world's top brands and advertising agencies. She is a widely read columnist, an in-demand speaker, and a highly regarded advisor. Anna, it's great to have you on the Know First podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of yours. And I guess we should start with, what is your native language? Serbian. You're Serbian. Correct. I'm Serbian from Belgrade, the capital of Serbia. I moved to New York 20 years ago to do my master's in media studies and my PhD in sociology. And I graduated PhD from Columbia in 2010. And then I worked in New York agencies. So I guess all my professional life is New York, but you can't be the accent. And <laughs> Never tried. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful accent. And I actually, I've listened to you on a few other shows and I've watched several of your presentations on YouTube and you're so engaged and you're so engaging. Thank you for saying that. Some people say intense, so yeah. I'll speak engaging because I like to lean towards inspiration. Absolutely. You pack so much wisdom. I want to start by talking about your book. You published your book in the time of the coronavirus. This basically finished right around, we were about a month into the pandemic, into the quarantining and shutting down. Tell me a little bit about the germination of your book. I love that question because it's, it's impossible to answer. <laughs> and I will tell you why, because I've been, like I have academic training, and, but I have also professional career. So it was always those two tracks that sort of intermingled. And then I would work as a CMO and I would be like, I can't take this anymore. I need to like be create, I need to write. I need to like spend some time with. Yeah. And then it was always like that sort of balance. And then I'm like, okay, it's now. In December, I'm like, you know what? It's, it's the time is now. January, I'll write a proposal. February, March, the book. April, I'll take another job. So that was the plan. And I followed the plan, but the world didn't. So I did finish everything on April the 1st. I found the publisher in January. I said there was interest and I selected among six publishers, which was always great. And, and I felt great about it. And writing was, was going well. I started a newsletter to force myself to write every week. And, and then I finished the, 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 the book, but then coronavirus was raging especially in new york it was the peak and i went back and i added the chapter at the end and that chapter is almost like a coda and i think it serves it i'm glad that happened actually because it forced not only me but i guess all of us to really reconsider what we aspire to not just as individual as individuals especially not as individuals but as a society as communities and i think we're going to see more and more of those conversations going forward i completely agree the last chapter of your book the coda as you said is entitled coronavirus killed the modern aspiration economy what comes next could you tell us what comes next? Yes, 
I was, the, the entire book was organized around like what happens when brands shift from manufacturing products and services to manufacturing aspiration. Mm-hmm. So when they engage in the flex commerce, which is more about, oh, what about your taste or what communities you belong to or what's your identity and what is aesthetic innovation. And all of that was great and good and, and worked perfectly. Like when we could travel, when we could go out, when we could go to museums and have have the great I don't know tour of European art institutions or the food tour in Barcelona and so on but once you can't do that anymore we learn two things the first one is that rich people are the ones who are rich <laughs> they're the ones who are aspirational at the end of the day because uh, having a big apartment having a gym at your home having a yacht to go to having an luxury bunker that's what matters when the world collapses that's what matters so we can all talk about oh it's not only about possessions it's about experiences it's not it's about what you have it's about hard core assets so that was the one thing that i had to interview there and then and then the other thing is really do we really want to measure economic success just through economic measures in a sense is GDP really the measure of a society's growth or do we want to intersperse that with cultural social health measures what kind of infrastructure you have what is the mental health of your inhabitants what is the level of happiness so all of that are new aspirations that we as a society need to become better positioned to together meet crises are going to be plenty with climate mm-hmm. change with climate crisis with all of like but we need as a society to be prepared together to battle them and i think that's the ultimate aspiration to stop looking at ourselves as individual aspiration and look at communal and social aspiration interesting focus on the community it is community, but it's also society. It's how sure. can we have more diverse society? How can we have more equal society? How can we right the wrongs of the past hundred years or even more? And on that society that's more diverse, that's more equal, is going to actually be the one that's more robust and adaptable. In this time, I've been referring to the reprioritization. I just told you before we started the show that we uh, reprioritized our lives and we saw ourselves settling in Chicago because that's where we most closely identify with as our home. Can you tell me a little bit about your reprioritization process throughout this pandemic and how you've looked at your life differently? Honestly, I have not, this is going to sound strange, but I've been always living my life, at least since growing up in the 90s in Serbia, sort of forces you to reprioritize. So my recalibration like happened like long time ago. And once like in 1999, NATO bombed Belgrade for three months. And after that, everything else is like a bonus. And in that sense, the crisis has already recalibrated how I lived my life for the past 20 years. And every, that sort of optimization and adaptability was something how I lived my life ever since moving here. So when coronavirus happened, I just saw it as an opportunity. Honestly, I'm like, okay, fine. It's, I'm, just gonna, I'm just gonna help people navigate through this. And in my newsletter, that's what I did. And that was a good thing because a lot of people responded positively. It was something for them to, to have some structure at the time. And 
it was just it was not hard for me to to recalibrate at all uh, understandably when you go through something of a crisis like life-threatening life yes literally life-threatening for for the first i would imagine first 10 20 years of your life right. your experience subsequent experiences to that would pale by comparison i would imagine you would be you would feel utterly prepared for situations like the one that we've faced for the last nine months yeah, prepared is one way. And the second thing is, it's, oh, I know this, I recognize this. And, you know, in a sense, that in a crisis mode, you, people are more adaptable than, than we think. And you probably realize that about you and your wife, uh, you know, about yourself. Sure. We give ourselves more credit because all of a sudden something that was completely not normal became normal. It's funny. I... I was leading a team of communicators and designers at a large multinational corporation at the start of the pandemic. And I had to transition the whole team to a crisis center. And it was, I felt empowered. I felt, I felt a sense of, of belonging in a way that I hadn't when we were just making graphics and newsletters and communications and PR blurbs and tweets and all that stuff, the social media posts. It, it, provided me with purpose in a way that the work that I'd been doing prior hadn't. And that's not to diminish the work that I'd been doing prior. I want to go back though to Serbia. I want to talk with you about your growing up. You dedicate your book to your grandmothers who you say didn't follow the rules, which I love. Could you talk to me a little bit about what lessons they imparted or, or how they affected your life? First of all, I grew up without grandfathers. One of them perished in the Second World War, and the other was kicked out <laughs> by my wow. grandmother. Wow. So one of my grandmothers, she was a partisan. She was fighting against Nazis in Serbia, and she was very young, and she was fearless. She was like five feet tall, but... <laughs> Yeah, and she was the only woman, and her war story, she ended up in a jail in Tirana, Albanian jail, and was, you know, beaten there. But then she was just like the most mellow and easygoing, and, but you can see the strength there. So that was incredibly, I didn't see, because she was my grandmother. You don't see that until later, how she just took her two kids to, to the capital and made a life there and so on. But the most important thing is her stories, how she like survived that on, on a, no, a number of times. Once just because she was a woman and Muslims don't kill women. And it was like she was in Kosovo and uh, that army, the Nazis were, you know, like, or collaborators. So she was then placed on a, on a truck with all her dead comrades. Once you survive that, then become a no rules person. And my other grandmother, she lost her husband in the Second World War and never remarried. And she was a career woman. She loved her job incredibly. And she created a life that was like travel and friends and joy. So that was what, what I not look up to, but grew up with. Sure. And, and that's, I'm imagining that was relatively unheard of at the time to be a career Oh, yeah, woman. we're talking about 50s and 60s and 40s. Yeah. Like, how, yeah, so absolutely. Now it's something that's like more and more normal, and I hope it becomes 
the norm, but back then, of course, it wasn't. And then also, I was brought up by parents who didn't have my brother and I gendered roles at all. So he had Barbies, I had whatever. It, it's very strange for me to identify, to be like, oh, I want to get married. To me, it was like, what? And to <laughs> be, you know, princess is a foreign concept. Doesn't mean that I'm a tomboy, I never was. It's just, you have to understand growing up in a communist country, we are all like comrades, you know, <laughs> we were at least. Sure, sure. I can only picture it, I, I obviously. <laughs> You would like it because growing up, you would like it. Later on, maybe not. But like in elementary school and then high school, it's all about what the knowledge, the, the, the theater, the Buñuel movies. It's not about going to the mall to hang out. It's about, oh, did you read Kafka? About those things. So it was very intangible aspiration. Did you read Kafka? I did. I'm just kidding. We don't have to talk about the metamorphosis. During the summer, I did. I did. Yeah, yeah. During the summer, when I was 15 or something. But don't pay attention to that. It's all everyone did in Serbia. Of course. So, what inspired you to look at New York for school? I think there was never a question. A question of me wanting to find a bigger playing field. Probably in your life as well. You probably had some decisions that felt like just natural, did you? To a degree. I, I remember my first day of college watching a documentary about the school that I would eventually attend in New York City. It was the driving force behind a lot of the decisions that I made subsequent to that inspiring 45-minute viewing of that documentary. But not to the level that I would imagine that you did. So it felt like a natural thing for you to want to look. Because it was like when I finished college in, in Belgrade, at the University of Belgrade, I studied psychology. It was like I wanted to study media studies and uh, new school, the new school in New York, they had a great program. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. And that's what I did. And then I went on to do a PhD. I went to Columbia then and that was that was the trajectory but it was never like it was always like oh yeah after college I'm going to New York. What was your focus in the media studies program? I focused on fundamentals of media and foundations of media. It was more of media theory, but then there was all also some media business. So be media business and media theory together. And then when I did PhD, it was the focus was organizing innovation. It was sociology mm. of innovation, sociology of technology, how innovation in technology transforms how we interact and transform society. I was part of the Central Organizational Innovation there, and I took a lot of classes at Columbia Business School as well, media strategy and media business. Were, were you at New School pre-Y2K or just post-Y2K? I arrived to New York two weeks before, September 11th. Oh, you moved to New York just... Two weeks before. So, yeah, it was, it's 19 and a half years. Yeah. So 2001, in August of 2001, yes. And what I'm remembering from that time, and I was a journalism major at the time that 9-11 was happening, and we were transitioning physical tape, real tape, you know, to digital recording devices. And we were working with hi tapes and switching over to hard drives. And what I remember about 9-11 in particular was the vastness of the conspiracy theories, the, the widespread panic that was stretching as far as to the rural community that I was living in in, in uh, Indiana at the time. And I'm imagining that studying the media through the 
the whirlwind being at the epicenter, the dust was still settling near where you were going to school. I'm imagining that was affecting what you were talking about in those classes. Can you remember back that far? Do you have any recollections that are relevant to what you talk about today? I remember, I, first of all, I think it's great to have gone through that because I do remember the panic around that. Now looking back, it's, yeah, it's, it's like science fiction, bad science fiction. And, but that was, we definitely at the new school, that's why I selected it because it was very progressive in a sense that digital media, even though they were nascent, were the focus of both the theory and the business models and the practice. So in that sense, uh, the, the 2000 and that switch was not anymore. It was a year later. But I think I was lucky that I was exposed to, to those who were at the forefront of the web design and also of thinking how digital changes, how we connect with each other, how we buy things, how we sort of uh, group together and organize ourselves. I don't know if that answers your question, but I don't remember anything more about... No, uh, that's, that's great. It ties together, you know, where we are today. And what I think I'm learning from you and what I think the world has to learn from you is the why behind the buy. And what is it that we're doing when we decide to bring something into our lives or take something out of our lives? The act of acquisition is something that I've been very considerate of, and it's something that has been part of my platform since I launched my blog back in 2008. I'd love to hear how you describe the act of acquiring in the world that we're living in right now in terms of, again, that reprioritization, that reconsideration of what really matters? I love the question and I think it can be answered on a several levels. And before the pandemic and before I started thinking about what, what consumers value and how that shapes um, what they spend their time and their money on and how that changes how brands communicate and sell. Even before that, I was very interested in behavioral economics and this contextual design and then how context really decides our behavior more than we recognize or think. And early examples are obviously websites, but then also when you look at like more recent examples like Depop, it's a social marketplace. And because it's a social marketplace and it's all about that intangible flex, the social flex, people buy likes from other people. Mm -hmm. In a sense, they look what items other people liked and they buy that. So they're using, you right, and they're using each other, like each other as signals at what is going to be trendy, what is going to, to be next, which you don't see in a traditional retail environment. That is one thing, how context defines. IKEA is the best at that, like design of IKEA stores was groundbreaking at the time. And now what we're seeing with, with Instagram shops and Instagram guides is also that curation help us navigate through that abundance of choice because when we have too much choice this is on demand market we are operating not in supply markets but in demand markets which means they're defined by abundance of choice the, the decision making factor becomes curation 
became people who can help people and settings that can help us navigate through all that choice. How do you define curation? Curation is a purposeful selection of a things or ideas or, or fields, if you will, that tell a particular story or a narrative. Most simply said, it's dot connecting. I like that, dot connecting. Remind the listeners of the name of your newsletter. The Sociology of Business. The Sociology uh, of Business. It sounds so serious. <laughs> it seems very serious, but you know why? It's really, it's actually fun. And I think yeah. you, you probably also find it fun because it connects two things that haven't been connected before. In a sense, what can business learn from sociology? What can business learn about what are people influenced by and how trends spread in society and why some things become popular and others don't? So like, I think those are all fun questions. Yeah. And in your newsletter, the most popular, the most read post so far on your Substack has been move over influencers. Here come curators. That's true. And I, I remember a time when the word curator was verboten, when we were all calling ourselves curators and everyone that was a creative switched from saying I'm a creative director to saying I'm a curator, <laughs> switched from saying I'm an artist to saying I'm a curator. And then it moved from curator to influencer. And then it moved from influencer to multiplier. And then it moved from multiplier to, gosh, I don't even know. It's like the rubber band started to wear out after a while. And now <laughs> here, here we are back to curators. Yeah, from yeah. your perspective, curation will take aspiration into its next realm, correct? It will. I need to put this in context. I wrote Please. that back in February. So in February, I was, when I was starting to think about the aspiration and the book and so on, it was all about like status symboling. Of course, like, of course, if you're a creative director, you don't want to be just one of 55 creative directors. You want to be a curator. You know why? Because it means that you have a point of view. That means that you have the know-how, the knowledge, the education needed to put forward an intelligent, and very thought through expert combination of things. So that is a status signaling. And that doesn't surprise me that those labels are used because they imply in different economic environments, they imply different things. So you're not just one run of the mill, you are one and only. So that's on sort of social uh, the status side. On the consumption side, you also wanna show your status by knowing oh, I'm going to follow this curator and then I'm going to educate myself and I'm going to evolve and develop my taste. And I think we are seeing that more than before because when you have influencers, sure, they have a great style, but then you never know, were they paid by the brand? Were like, they're like, Honestly, authenticity was used to be the opposite of selling out. You're like, you're outside of the economic system and people trust you because you're not for sale. But now, sign of authenticity for influencers that they're legit is that they work with brands, that they sold out. So in that kind of reverse, I don't even know how to call it, like diverse relationship between authenticity and selling out, then you need to have someone who has no agenda. Of course, curators will have some agenda, but at the same time, it's more about that time that you put in, the intellect, the knowledge, the research that goes into that. Influencers just need to show up at their balcony and take a photo in whatever they're wearing. 
they don't even need a balcony anymore. They can Photoshop. Or, well, now they're on a balcony because they can't go out. They're going to be like right. <laughs> canceled if they go out, you know? So that is, but on the, like, most important thing is like, oh no, curator is actually someone who has the chops. Because when you look at the Instagram curators, at least the popular ones, like Sam Trotman, he writes really long editorials about why he selected something and how something that is happening in culture right now can be traced back to, I don't know, 70s or 80s or whatnot, and that why we should know about it. So he's connecting dots, really. And then what curators are doing now is a very important role is they're bridging the gap between different taste communities. Because when you see we're all in all our little taste bubbles more and more by algorithm, by our own human tendencies and so on. And curators take things from one context to put it into another. So they are actually the ones who are making us like educate us about the world more. What was the name of the gentleman you just said? Sam Trotman. So his Instagram name is Samutaro. S-A-M-U-T-A-R-O. And you said that he packs a lot in. I feel like you pack a lot in. I feel like you're on a rampage. <laughs> I mean, do I, is it too much? Maybe I should tone it down. No, it's not enough. I think is what I'm trying to say is that don't tone it down. You're, you're spoon feeding us. You talk about the curators. They are delivering on what the influencers never could. They have the goods. The fact is that you have the goods. You are providing the world with a much needed shot in the arm at a time when it needs it the most. All references to vaccine aside. The fact is I'm curious as to how this all emerged for you now. Was it pandemic driven or was it bubbling up to the surface before that? It was always there because I started uh, my blog at the same time as you did in 2008. And back then I was working at Razorfish and I was doing my dissertation proposal. So it was a lot, like it was a lot of com going on in terms of combo work and, 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 and writing and so on. And I never stopped in a sense. I always had to have that creative outlet. And uh, between the work and, and connecting the, what I know from sociology with what I'm seeing. So it didn't just happen overnight because most things don't happen overnight. They are happening and happening. And then there is a time. I think I wanted to write the book for the past 10 years. I just never had enough time or enough focus or enough knowing what I want to write about. Or, and when those things come together, then the right place at the right time and the, and the right idea, then things happen. But I didn't overthink it. I just started doing it. And that is one advice if I have. If you have an idea, just start doing it. You can go back and define it and define it. But yeah, I remember you said, like, just do it. I hate it. I personally hate it. For me, it's more about, as I said, keep moving. Mm. I like, keep, I like keep moving. It feels a little bit more manageable than reminding yourself to, as Lauren Wilkins Block said on our podcast, do it now or somebody else. I think Paul said, just do it. I, I think keep moving is good. As long as yeah. you have some connectivity or some kinesthetics behind it, you're just coming off of workout. I'm getting ready to go on a run. 
I think we're at the point in our conversation where we can move on to talking about what's in your cookies. This is the part of our conversation where we talk about what you read, watched, listened to, shopped for on the internet, what's in your browser history, but we always begin with what's your favorite cookie? Anna, what's your favorite cookie? I don't like sweets. That's <laughs> that was a bummer. And I'm like, I'll have to give him something. And I guess Madeline. Well, what's your favorite savory? Oh, you like Madeline's. But what's I your favorite do. savory? My favorite savory, oh, something like involving uh, jalapenos for sure. Or I think pickles. That is really, yeah, pickle. I like pickles. The, the Serbian who likes pickles, folks. <laughs> you, yeah, exactly. you heard it here first. Any, is there any brand that you look for with pickles or do you make your own pickles? I'm not making, come on. I mean, like, <laughs> like that. Would, <laughs> I wish though that I had that sort of bandwidth <laughs> or interest. No, I don't have any. Yeah, but I guess that's how you grow up. Just a lot of like I like pickled stuff. And what do you look for though on the shelf? Like when you're looking, do you get them out of the refrigerated section or do you get them off the, the shelf stable versions? Uh, I think, you know what? I like when I get in Whole Foods, they have this like the ones that are not all pickled. Oh, sure. And I think they come from some farm or whatever. So that's the one. So the half pickled Whole Foods. Uh, yes, but don't, like that sounds like, that sounds like, that makes me sound like a snob. No, not at all. Not at all. We're all, we're all kind of living in this post farm to table movement. I feel like yeah. there's aspects of my refrigerator that reflect mass consumerism, and there's aspects of my refrigerator that reflect the kid that was 25 and volunteering at the farmers market. Nice. And then I guess if I had to pick one savory thing, that would be like hot and sour soup. Yeah. So some Chinese stuff. So. That's it. Yeah. I'm curious, what's your media diet like? What are the things that you that keep you busy when you're just messing around online? First of all, I hate messing around online because that I don't think that's a good use of anyone's time. You like <laughs> I like falling in rabbit holes, obviously, but I like the good curators. That's like going back to our conversation. Sure. And I think that Chris Black is great curator because he puts a combination of like current affairs and the political stuff with the media stuff with brand stuff with popular culture stuff so if you're subscribed to his newsletter or even if you just go to public announcement site there is the every day there is a the selection of links and increasingly like i was like do i really need another newsletter but increasingly his newsletter took over all other newsletters so i never open business of fashion anymore at all because like I find stuff in his that's repeated in others so why and, and his is better so that's in that sense I start that's my starting point that's, so, that's so wild I met Chris when he was working for a tequila brand in 2007 or 2008 <laughs> and have followed closely with done to death projects and with public announcement and his podcast and he's another one who seems to be standing on the precipice of culture and helping us to understand where we are as much as where we come from. And, and he gives a little bit of where we're going. I think that your perspective pushes us a lot farther into the future of where all of this is heading. Do you have any sense of how you got to this place where you're able to focus on the future in the way that you do? 
again, it's, it's intuition, informed intuition. And that may sound like bullshit, but at the same time, when you spend a lot of your time thinking and reading, and if you have different sources, and you've been through a thinking boot camp, doing PhD, you can't just look at the surface of things. And mm-hmm. once you go beyond the surface of things, you, you, to be honest, a lot of things that I'm writing about have been written in sociology, probably not in that same format, not applicable to the same field. And, but a lot of observations, not even observations, but approaches have been from 10 or 20 years ago. It's the world is just catching up. And I was lucky that I was trained on those kind of thinkers. And once you have the tools, you can apply it to whatever interests you. But for me, it's always, I guess the biggest thing that I learned is always to see, to ask, does this sentence mean anything? That's why you'll never find any jargon in my, that's why I I have no agenda. My agenda is academic agenda, if you will. It's like, it's explaining things in a way that makes the most sense. And in a way that that most people will be able to make sense of things. So it's to articulate things that people are thinking about and give them tools then to address them. What would you say is the most important tool that you have found that you've developed that's helped you address some of the problems that you share and talk about? That would be my training as a strategist because I was very lucky to have learned from the best. I was at huge, I was at Razorfish, I was at Droga 5, and I was exposed to the finest strategic minds working today. And that training as a strategist, and then, of course, I evolved my own models and and thinking in that area. But I would say that that combination of just being able to articulate clearly things and also having the strategic tools, that means, okay, if this is where we are going, this is how we are going to get there, these are specific things that need to happen to get from point A to point B. This is what it means in terms of resources and processes in internal organization. And this means in terms of how consumers behave, their culture is right now, what is happening in the category, what is, how is this company positioned? And I'm going to write more about that next year because I started with this two by two matrix of aspiration and then went to the brand checklist and saying, hey, how can you really see if this brand is going to be able to grow in a sustainable long-term way. Don't look for usual VC signals, the fast growth, the product market fit, the size of addressable market. These are all important for the beginning. That's to kickstart it. But like really two years in, three years in, what happens then? You really need to have a qualitative as well as quantitative set of criteria that keep a brand in check. It's so well-spoken. I'm overwhelmed. Is it like you talk a lot? <laughs> no, it's you, what you say. It's, it's a salve to a lot of what <laughs> I have been wounded by in my brand practice and in my experiences as a brand strategist. I develop around notions that are good and solid and quality and, and driven by providing more than what the customer needs at every step of the way 
whether it's in communication or it's in the product itself. And I find that so often my boss or the company dictate would preclude me from being able to provide in the manner in which you're talking. And I feel like everyone needs to listen to you. I hope that everyone listens to your podcast and then they're going to listen to me. As <laughs> exactly. It's like one, two punch. All right. So let's move on to our Proustian questionnaire. We're going to do these oh, rapid fire. Okay. If you were a cocktail, what kind of cocktail would you be? I am a glass of cold water. It's Why do you no say that? bullshit. No bullshit. You need it. it may, you may not always want it, but you always need it. I, I love that. What article of clothing would you say is your battle armor? I'm myself, uh, my battle armor, and I do believe in that. And I do believe that clothes are just for the show. However, clothes are unbelievably important show. And I don't have one article of clothing, but I need to have an outfit. And that means I need to have something that is considered from shoes all the way to the necklace I'm wearing. And luckily I have an eye, so I can do that. And people comment a lot on, oh, I love what you're wearing. And that makes me feel good, but I wouldn't say that's my armor. That's actually my open door. Yeah, yeah. I love the answer that you are your own battle armor. But then there's the notion of the outfit. Is there a favorite outfit? Is there an outfit that makes you feel most like you or that you think you most closely identify with? No, no. That's fair. Okay. Can I just say one thing? Because I think that outfits that are put together in them are best outfits for one. And second of all, if I do have one thing, if I have something important, some meeting, I wear a white t-shirt because that is not, that's like blank slate. You're not going to let people interpret you based on what you're wearing. I agree. (laughs) Implicitly, I agree. I think that you know better than I do. We'll just say that. We'll end with this. What is your life's motto? You already said it. I said, keep moving, keep moving. And that means keep moving in your social network, keep moving in your aspirations and your ambition, keep moving in your professional life, in your personal life, in your immediate social graphs. And that keep moving means like, don't get bogged down by the roles that you had two years ago. Like it it means... Like, it, it doesn't mean running from something. It means being actively present and thinking about yourself in terms of what you enjoy doing, what you makes you happy, what are you good at. Hmm. Active, actively listening, actively paying attention. That's good. Well, Anna, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. I want to leave you with one last question. What did you get out of the last hour that we talked? I got... The inside, there's so many wonderful people in the world and that every conversation is a gift because in every conversation you get one thing, at least, at least one thing that you're going to keep thinking about or that is going to lead to another thing. And I got that you, that I'm really glad that our, our paths crossed and I think you are fantastic and I would love to stay in touch. Oh, that's really sweet. I would like to as well. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Anna Angelic. 
Subscribe to her newsletter at angelictriplea.substack.com. That's A-N-D-J-E-L-I-C-Triple-A at substack.com. And buy her book, The Business of Aspiration, at thebusinessofaspiration.com. Tune in next week when my guest will be Val Mayest Coffee's Bo Nelson. Until then, do something every day to better know yourselves and then adorn yourselves accordingly. You and you alone. This is the No First Podcast. The No First Podcast is a production of All Plat Out. Our theme song is That's Right by Pop Villains. Thanks to Marla, Stella, and Ruby. Stay safe, stay healthy, and know first who you are. Aspiration, but aspiration in a human sense. Something that moves humans to go to the moon, to discover new things, to keep moving themselves, to keep asking questions, to keep being curious. They aspire always for the better future. We never aspire to go back. We always aspire to go forward. So I would say at the moment, my favorite word is aspiration because it's so human.